Good afternoon, it's Milt Rosenberg. Welcome to the show of the same name. I was away yesterday on some special business, but I'm very glad to be here today and very glad to have with me in studio Arthur Sear, an old friend and a very well-informed political scientist. As a veteran academic, you can take it from me, not all political scientists, and surely not all social psychologists are well-informed. Art Sear is. Um, and he is these days associated with Carthage College up in Racine, Wisconsin. We're also going to be joined by three, count them, three uh, significant correspondents, all from Washington today. Uh, Karen DeYoung of the um, Washington Post, uh, Daniel Halper of the Weekly Standard, Marshall Barone of the Washington Examiner. In a moment of comparative quiet, and contemplative peace. Art, um, did you watch the hearings yesterday? I've seen parts of them. I was not able to watch it live, but I've certainly read recaps. And, and what do you make of it all? Well, it's a highly partisan exercise. I think the former Secretary of State acquitted herself as well as could be expected under the circumstances. By keeping her cool. Yeah, exactly. And by uh, kind of sharing the empathy of the members of the uh, the, Republic, the Republican members of the um, committee and the Democrats as well, but she did not attack them head on. Did she, in fact, really justify anything that she did in the crisis generated in Benghazi on that particular day? No, I think that there is a good deal of evidence that, as one would expect, the Secretary of State was not involved in detail, nor should she have been, I don't think the Republicans have yet developed a credible case for the, what is their real uh, attack, that uh, that the events, tragic events were spun with the 2012 election in mind. Uh, things are really kind of boiling up in a way uh, that seems quite pertinent to the coming presidential election. Apart from those hearings, and we'll talk more about them, of course, both with you and with our correspondence from Washington. We had the withdrawal of Joe Biden yesterday, yeah. uh, which was or was not expected. It's been predicted both ways. We had the withdrawal of an interesting man on the Democratic side, Jim Webb, mm -hmm. who had no campaign and probably a very, very low rating, if any rating at all, but still is an interesting and a significant fellow. I remember him from appearances that he made a few times on uh, the precedent radio program. Great. He's a novelist as well, former Secretary of the Navy, and something of a hardliner. That, well, yes, that's right, and you get at a very good point in the sense that consistently now for several decades, the Republican Party, rain or shine, uh, whomever's in office, the Republican Party does better with the American electorate overall. They're more credible, believable, and trusted than the Democrats. When John McCain uh, was running in uh, 2008, uh, Republicans were underwater on the economy, on health care, on concern for the poor, on education, the environment, you name it. But they remained, even in those dark times for the GOP, uh, more trusted than the Democrats on national defense. Jim Webb has had an opportunity, I think, to mm -hmm. open a very important debate for the and, Democrats. And he made that opening in the one debate he participated in, but uh, we won't hear any more from him. He's officially withdrawn. Quite right. No, that's a very important point. He did try to raise that yeah. dimension. Uh, one other matter of considerable interest 
in American politics at the moment, and maybe even has some ultimate bearing upon the presidential race. I wonder if it does, and if so, please tell me how, uh, is uh, Congressman Ryan's decision to go for the House speakership, which we are assured he will now get probably by unanimous vote. Uh, I think he'd be an outstanding choice. He's uh, the congressman in the district where I work, Carthage College in Kenosha, yeah. Wisconsin. And a former vice district. presidential candidate. Absolutely, in 2012, and a potential presidential candidate. That's what I was about to ask you, really, because we're told, somebody was saying this just the other night on somebody's uh, cable news program, that uh, House speakers don't ever get to run for the presidency. There is one exception, James K. Polk, way is back in fact? the 1840s, yes, who was a very, uh, very dominant and very strong House Speaker before uh-huh. he became a similar dominant, strong one-term president, but by choice he chose not to run again. No, you're quite right, it is not normally seen as a stepping so- stone. It's party loyalty, and actually in the current tormented environment, I think Congressman Ryan could get some even even greater credit by stepping up uh, on the firing line. And if he supposedly stands, as some say he does, between the two, quote, wings of the Republican Party, mm-hmm. or has friends on both sides <clears throat> and wants them to unite in supporting him, is it possible that he may represent a kind of conciliatory intra-party approach for the Republicans that will advance their cause? Yes, uh, he's actually well-positioned. He, he has a strong, deserved reputation for integrity and for getting things done. You don't necessarily find either in Washington. And supposedly he understands money, finance, and the budget. Yeah. Uh, no, he's driven the debate on the budget, as you know, yeah. and many of our listeners do. He's also extremely conservative in doc- doctrinal terms, if not in terms of style. He is quite acceptable to the Freedom Caucus, and I believe he's gotten their endorsement. And, of course, the Republican leadership... Uh, more pragmatic in the middle of the road, have, are breathing a sigh of relief. By the way, a matter of <clears throat> mere political etymology, when did the Tea Party uh, faction get uh, transformed into the Freedom Caucus? I, the Freedom Caucus, I believe, is members of the House. The Tea Party is a is general people. movement. Yeah. But they uh, used to be called the Tea Party members. Yeah, from, all the, same. from the 2010 election, it emerged very spontaneously, yeah. and that was a rhetorical device. These are the. Uh, so is the Freedom Caucus a kind of. Yes. Rhetorical device. Absolutely. Right. Uh, the Paul Revere Caucus may be coming next. Uh-huh. House. Yeah. Um, everything has been in such total stasis mm-hmm. for so long. Uh, <clears throat> is it going to remain that way until we get a new administration, whether Republican or Democrat? Uh, or does all of this election process kind of stir things up so that maybe things will happen again in government? I don't think there's long-term stasis, meaning a frozen situation in American politics. Rather, we have one state of affairs, the thesis, an antithesis rises up, and then we get some sort of synthesis. I do think that uh, both this parties... This is arts, your political philosopher. <laughs> you're, you're turning Hegelian. Absolutely. Well, you yeah. inspired it by referring to stasis. Yeah. Yeah, but I, no, I don't think it'll remain static. I do think that the Republicans will develop more moderation, as they did... What they need is another Dwight Eisenhower, find him somewhere. But Ike was a remarkable catalyst in changing, transforming an atmosphere that was even more poisonous than today. What worries the hell out of me, or for a family station, what worries the heck out of me, mm-hmm. is uh, the way in which we, that is our administration and our current president, surely, has botched uh, our involvement in Middle Eastern affairs. 
and how that's just going to go on getting worse now that, among other things, the real ruler of Syria may well turn out to be uh, 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 Putin rather than Assad. Mm-hmm. And what's going to come of all of that, I don't know, but it can't be good for the world, it can't be good for the Arabs, it's surely not good for the, for Israel. Well, in the case of Syria, actually, if, if Assad does go down, uh, and that looked likely before the Russian but it's, government... But it's now been propped up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, the successor would not be Jeffersonian democracy, as we both know. It would be more of the kind of chaos and instability that has characterized Libya oh, so you're saying and this Iraq. Is, he's a bastard, but for the moment he's our bastard. I think that's very well put. Yeah, that's the way FDR characterized Somoza exactly. at a time when we were worried about Nazism and fascism right. as well as communism in Latin America. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very well put. Uh, but, I, but he's in there, our bastard or otherwise, <laughs> at tremendous cost to uh, the Syrians, that is, the, the people, and beyond the Syrians, probably uh, citizens of other Middle Eastern nations. There's been a hell of a toll of death and, of course, displacement and refugee disorder. Yeah, that's right. I, uh, that, of course, is nothing new in the Middle East, especially since World War II. But it's but exacerbated it's, now. This, Well, the scale, the scale yeah. is really tremendous, including the scale of refugees. Again, that's happened before, and there have been people uh, in desperate need, which the current refugee politi- population generally isn't. But you're right, the scale is tremendous. Do you buy any of the apprehension that has been voiced by many <clears throat> that uh, within those ranks of refugees uh, flowing into Germany and into other areas of Western Europe, and some people advocate letting 100,000 of them quickly into this country, but the president has just recently said he'll allow about 10,000 mm-hmm. very quickly. Do you share the apprehension that disguised within their ranks may be many essentially uh, jihadists generally and agents of uh, ISIS more particularly? Well, surely there are some, and you always take risk when you're providing humanitarian relief. But I think it, we should all be inspired that modern Germany, uh, given their history, uh, and Angela Merkel has taken the lead in this kind of humanitarian effort. And in the broad sense, that should be very, very reassuring. Well, one of the reasons, apparently, you're also a professor of business as well as of political science and run an institution uh, based at Carthage College concerned with that interaction. Uh, you're also aware, of course, that the birth rate uh, in Germany is about as low as any country in Western Europe, and that uh, they really have the problem of having more jobs than they have people to fill them. That's right. Well, we that, are we are the only uh, major industrial, modern industrial nation that isn't ra- aging pretty rapidly, and the fact that we have so much immigration and a large and rapidly growing Hispanic and also Islamic population yeah. uh, is an important factor in that, and it gives us economic strength. You're quite right. This could be a great boon for the Germans. They it may give it economic strength. Undoubtedly, it does. Yeah. Uh, during his, uh, even his first term, I think, George W. Bush explained uh, uh, some of his favorable reaction to uh, heavy immigration by saying these are people willing to do jobs that Americans uh, won't do. Well, maybe Americans would do them if they really had the opportunity. But the fact is yeah. that they're filling the ranks for low-paid workers in and around industry and the distribution organizations and so on with recent immigrants. Uh, in this country with Mexicans, uh, for some 
uh, decades now, going back maybe some 30 or 40 years, uh, with Turks in Germany, and now with other Islamics uh, in Germany, and with this new demographic wave coming out of the Middle East generally. You're quite right to mention the role of Turkey. They, of course, were allies of Germany in the First World War. They were smart enough to stay out and Mm -hmm. then come in uh, toward the end on the Allied side. But there's a powerful... But they're at the beginning of the Islamic presence in modern Europe. Well, that's right. And they have a powerful affinity for Germany, which is reciprocated. Germany uh, radically changed their citizenship laws a couple of decades ago. It used to be disturbing. Uh, they would refer to German blood and the necessity for, you know, th- there was an awful lot of disturbing rhetoric in their citizenship laws, and they've changed radically in the right direction because of their desire to have more Turks in the population. But it's really forced by economic factors, is it? Uh, no. The German economy remains the most powerful in Europe in manufacturing. But it needs workers. Oh, well, yeah, but... Uh, uh, the fact that you, you quite rightly emphasize the Islamic dimension and Turkey, yeah. I think, is especially promising and benign precisely because of the way Germany has welcomed them. You're quite right to shift from humanitarian considerations to the economy regarding the U.S. And uh, the, the reference you made to doing the jobs Americans don't want to do really labeled George W. Bush as a country club corporate Republican. The Tea Party is made up of the kind of people who become enraged by that sort of rhetoric, and he quickly backpedaled at the time. But this big fissure in the Republican Party is one of their biggest headaches. Actually, of course, that began before George W. Bush. Quite right. And even uh, George uh, H.W. Bush. It began with Reagan essentially legalizing some two million of the Mexican illegals. That's right. And it's it's clearly much more of a headache within the Republican Party today than within the Democratic Party today. Uh, there's protectionist sentiment within the de- Democratic Party, but I think psychologically and spiritually, if you will, the modern Democrats are much more attuned to a truly diverse society than the Republicans. Go a few miles up into the atmosphere, look at the whole world from that perch, and ask yourself whether the uh, eminent Harvard political scientist Huntington some years ago had it basically right when he said what is coming now, meaning into the uh, this uh, new century, is a clash of civilizations. And that's a clash between uh, Islam and the West and a separate but equally challenging clash between the West and particularly the America, uh, America leading the West and China. Yes, cultural clashes are important. The book became a bestseller in the 90s and even bigger after 9-11. He emphasizes, he posits a basic fundamental difference between Islam and the West. However, uh, a much more important book by Sam Huntington, in my view, is The Third Wave, in which he, a couple decades early, uh, which came out in the early 90s, uh, a couple decades ago, he emphasized the fact that Uh, Since the Portuguese and Greek democratic revolutions in 1974, a third wave of democratization, if you will, which started with the American and French revolutions, has spread. That's a more optimistic vision. Uh, The book did not become a bestseller, but I think that point is even more profound in terms of how the world is really moving beyond the headlines. By the way, just in terms of your own politics, to whatever degree you care to reveal them, uh, does it matter much to you whether the next presidency is filled by a Democrat or a Republican? Or does it matter rather which particular person? 
the latter, which candidate is elected. I've tended to vote for Democrats, and I've been able to vote for quite a long while now, but I've voted for Republicans as well, and I, I don't consider myself highly partisan. If you're going to have a choice between Mrs. Clinton and, uh, I guess we simply have to call him Mr. Trump, mm-hmm. what will your choice be? Oh, I'd vote for Hillary Clinton. Why? Uh, I, I think he may well be dangerous. He's certainly unstable in terms of his public persona and presentation. I'm mindful that he's maintained and developed a very large corporate entity that he inherited, but he has no real experience in public office, and he strikes me as a demagogue and uh, attention seeker in the worst possible way. One of our guests uh, later on the phone from Washington uh, is a fellow who's done a book about the Clintons, uh, which uh, was quite critical of them and which got heavily savaged by the liberal press. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, we'll see what he has to say. Right now, we'll see what our commercial friends have to say, and then we will return and go to the first of the guests from Washington. And on the phone with us from Washington at this moment, I trust, is Karen DeYoung of the Washington Post. Uh, Good afternoon, Karen. Hello. So glad to have you here, and thank you for joining us. Thank you Uh, for inviting me. You are, of course, uh, well known as the national security correspondent for the Washington Post, interestingly also, as a Pulitzer Prize winner. Um, And uh, I want to read the first two paragraphs of an article that you published on October 22nd. Um, So that's, I guess, just yesterday, before the hearings began. You say, Republicans on the Benghazi Committee made headway Thursday in depicting uh, former Secretary of State Hillary Rodham Clinton as disengaged from the security needs of a key outpost in Libya, and curiously receptive to the lengthy policy musings sent to her in private email by a friend and sometime political advisor. That, of course, would be Sidney Blumenthal. And then you go on to say, but during hours of fastballs flung at Clinton by GOP lawmakers and softballs lobbied by Democrats, I do like that metaphor, uh, very little was added to the already extensive factual, investigative record of what happened and why in Benghazi before, during, and after the terrorist attacks there in September 2012. What should have been answered? What outstanding questions still persist and uh, should have been answered by her but were somehow finessed and avoided by her? Well, I think that there there basically aren't too many additional questions. Um you know, I think that the what the Republicans were trying to do were, was to get her to say something in such a way that, uh, I don't know, if one believes in political conspiracies, that she it would be something that would be good for a negative uh, campaign ad, uh, but, but otherwise to do something that would allow them to chip away at what has become the accepted narrative of what happened. And I say accepted in the sense that, um, you know, there have been a number of investigations now, uh, and I think they all point to the same conclusions. I don't think they reflect particularly well on the administration in terms of of its attentiveness to what the security concerns were in Benghazi. Uh, but I don't think that they point to some kind of conspiracy or any kind of hidden information that we don't know the basic outline of at this point. 
what uh, is pointed up, however, by way of uh, the inadequacy of our response? Well, I think that, um, you know, uh, here you had a, uh, a compound that was sitting in in Benghazi, one of the most dangerous places in the world, um, that had that was very lightly protected, uh, had as do many U.S. installations, private uh, security guards, uh, local security guards, uh, who were guarding the perimeter. Uh, again, this is in a place where you had lots of different militias, really nobody you could totally trust. And very few people on the inside, um, who Americans who who were armed and they were not armed very well. Um, one of the interesting things to me that Clinton said yesterday, which was that uh, you know, as she has consulted with with experts and stuff, uh, e- even if they'd had a lot more security, it's not clear that they could have resisted this attack. And so the and so the the question is. Did the administration, for whatever reason, let down the people who were there? Um, should that that place never have been there in the first place? Um, is this a, is this one of the inevitable risks that that diplomats make being on the ground? And I I think all of those things are true. And then you're left with the question: Well. Whose fault was it? It was it, and who, what heads should roll? And is this something that uh, it should be a game changer for someone like Clinton or other people who were responsible? Um, you know, those questions I believe were answered some time ago, uh, and I don't think that that new facts have emerged that have changed the basic narrative. And people made their decisions some time ago. Uh, hanging in the air always these days. Uh, as regards anyone who is a candidate or might become a candidate for the presidency. And for all we know, somebody else might still declare. So to the contrary, a few people have uh, officially withdrawn just within the last two or three days. Mm -hmm. But all the same, always hanging in the air is the question, how does this contribute to the presidential probabilities for that particular person? Did she, Hillary Clinton, increase or decrease her presidential popularity uh, yesterday? I think she probably increased it. You know, the, the, uh, her poll numbers went down fairly precipitously during the summer, and, and the, uh, at least the conventional political wisdom was that was because people didn't trust her very much, um, in large part because of all the revelations about her private email account. I think uh, she... Her numbers went up a bit after the uh, first Democratic debate a few weeks ago, and they went up again as a result of of this hearing um, uh, yesterday. And you you even saw, we have a story this afternoon about a pretty sharp increase of political donations uh, to her uh, just last night uh, in the wake in the wake of the hearing. So I think it'd be pretty hard to say that um, that uh, she was anything but positive for her. Here's uh, your co-discussant, Arthur Sear. Very great pleasure to talk with you uh, directly, ma'am. Thank you very much for appearing with us on the program. My pleasure. Going beyond this uh, specific issue, which has become so politicized and uh, on which a lot of people obsess for different reasons, how would you, if I may, how would you evaluate her tenure overall as Secretary of State 
And also, do you have a, a view at this point of John Kerry's record as her successor? Uh, th this is to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, you know, I I think that uh, it's it's often said. I think with some reason that there weren't any great triumphs during her during her tenure as Secretary of State. She didn't. Uh, she she is not identified with any particular grand campaigns. But she just uh, set a new mileage record, apparently. She did. Yeah, she went a lot of places. Uh, I think that Kerry is a very different kind of secretary. Um, he has, he really doesn't have anything to lose. Uh, he's, he has said he, you know, is not going to run for office again. Um, he's a kind of go for broke kind of guy, and there's no reason for him not to do that now. Um, you know, the, the president said, uh, go and do these negotiations with Iran. Now, Clinton can legitimately say that those those talks started under her, and she encouraged them, uh, and she sent her senior officials uh, to begin them. That was all done in secret. Um, would she have have stayed the course uh, as long as Kerry did in the sort of public part of the negotiations with under a lot of criticism? I, I don't know. I mean, she had had and has a political life that 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 he doesn't have. Uh, so I think that that that's probably the the basis for for comparison. Is she out of the woods in terms of um, things to worry about as she tries to run toward and achieve the presidency, or are a number of those disgruntled Republicans, uh, including the ones who comment along those lines on some of the cable channels, are they right when they say uh, just wait until the material? on the emails begins to hit the pan. Just wait until the FBI releases its material. Just wait until the possible, and some say probable, and some say virtually certain criminal indictments that will follow. Well, there are certainly more emails to be publicly released. Uh, you know, if one judges from what's come out so far, there's, there's, not, a, there's not a whole lot there, and, that, and one's judgment on it is is not in the realm of the criminal. It's a more subjective judgment as to, you know, whether she should have been corresponding with who she was corresponding with, uh, or should have been corresponding more with people she wasn't corresponding. Well, are you aware of this fellow uh, Napolitano? He's a judge, uh, was a judge, and so he's called routinely Judge Napolitano when he appears on Fox News, who has now drawn up what he takes to be a, a bill of indictment where she has violated federal law, all with regard to the, the email business. She has violated federal law, uh, he says, some 15 or 18 times. And he is supported in this by Rudy Giuliani, a former great prosecutor before he became mayor of New York. And there's all that stuff that's brewing uh, at the same time. And it's been stirred up again because she sort of got through the morass or got through the time of testing yesterday before the committee. I think I would put that more in the category of political commentary. Uh, the FBI certainly is investigating uh, whether there was any compromise of classified information. They said they're not investigating Hillary Clinton directly at the moment. Yeah. Um, you know, sooner or later, they will make a judgment as to whether there was any compromise of classified information. Um, I think most Many commentators believe that it's hard to see that translating into any kind of criminal charge. 
uh, that would that would involve her. Well, but some... that's certainly, you know, there's certainly other things that will happen. There, there are more emails to come out. There are more documents to come out. Right now, I don't see them changing any uh, narrative as far as Benghazi goes. Um, certainly, we have to wait for the FBI to make a final judgment on this, but um, it's it's hard to see uh, that there would be some kind of criminal liability for her at this point. You, of course, are focused on uh, security issues. Just before you joined us, uh, Art and I were talking about the eternal mess in the Middle East, which has now graduated to super mess, obviously, and uh, the presence now of Putin and uh, Putin-esque kind of plotting to stir things up all the more, even as they back Assad. And uh, Art was making the point, though I used, I guess I uh, resuscitated the old quote that Franklin Roosevelt gave concerning uh, Somoza in Nicaragua. He's namely of Putin in the Middle East, or rather of Assad in the Middle East. He's a bastard, but he's our bastard. Right now it is in our interest to keep him in power. Would you agree? Uh, you know, I think that the that that Putin is not wedded to Assad per se. He certainly he certainly wants to see the structure and and um, you know personality of the current regime remain in place. I think if somebody could su- suggest or come up with an acceptable alternative uh, that that would meet those criteria that that would be acceptable to Russia, um, but nobody has yet, and so that translates into support for Assad. Then there is the looming uh, question, geographically a neighboring question, of uh, of the so-called Islamic uh, Republic of ISIS, or ISIL. Um, are we going to have to live with that for a long time? They have at last finally got around to killing an American soldier in uniform. They did that just yesterday, apparently. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the defense secretary had a news conference here in Washington today where he was asked about that, whether the involvement of, of this soldier and at least one other uh, who survived was kind of put the lie to to the administration's insistence that there would be no U.S. Uh, combat involvement on the ground. Um, they, the defense secretary, Carter, uh it sort of went out of his way to say, this is not combat. This is the guy who was with them uh, training and advising them. They got into trouble, and without giving a whole lot of details explaining this, he said, uh, you know, he he saw an opportunity to act that would save lives, and he did it. Um, that does not constitute uh, involvement. You know, the administration says its goal remains to to destroy the Islamic State. Uh, I think they've got a very long road ahead of them. Um, this is a question of years and, and, and not months. And what do you do about all of those Westerners, though they may largely be Muslim uh, uh, immigrants to the West, or rather the children of Muslim immigrants to the West, who are getting recruited into ISIS? Somebody in the British uh, military structure or uh, in the intelligence sector uh, estimated that there are now some 150 uh, native-born Brits who are soldiers of ISIS, with many more getting recruited and being uh, shipped over there one way or another. 
I think there may even be more than that. I think that uh, you know, estimates go up to twenty thousand or more Good um, foreigners who are now uh, who who are well, foreigners totally yes their, foreigners and but many of them from Europe and the ones from this country I think numbering in the hundreds. Um, yeah, I think that's a huge problem. It's a huge problem. You've got people with with uh, passports that will allow them to to come home. Um, I think that. Um, that poses that poses a risk, and it's something that they're trying to get a handle on. And it's and it's been a very very difficult problem, and I don't think they really do have a handle on it yet. Related to that, I've read in the serious media that uh, Putin is increasingly concerned about the fact, and others in the Russian government, that a, a large and growing percentage of the non-indigenous ISIS fighters come from the Islamic population of the former Soviet Union. You have to dig for that story, but it it strikes me as potentially extremely important, including in explaining what he's what it, what President Putin is doing currently in the region. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, you you look at people from Chechnya and other places, you you have to raise the question of whether Russian policy in those regions has in fact promoted the growth of, of extremism uh, in what is a very large Muslim population, um, certainly in the in the former uh, Soviet republics in, in, in just south of Russia. Um, but, but there's no question that they see a threat um, or the expansion of a threat that's already there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that... Uh, that is a concern, and and then of course the the Obama administration raises the question of well, if you're so concerned about that, why aren't you helping us against the Islamic State? Why are you trying to keep um, keep Assad and keep that regime in power? Their answer is we believe that that only the in, the force on the ground, uh, the Assad military, which is the only real organized force in the ground other than the Islamic State is capable of combating them, and therefore we have to preserve that force and then go after the Islamic State. Well, you just I, said a, a little, uh, a moment or two ago that you think they will be there for years. Uh, how do we ultimately expunge them? We're about to stop for some commercials, uh, and but before we do that and say goodbye to you and uh, allow you to get back to uh, your serious work, uh, what thought do you have about the ultimate fate of ISIS, and how uh, it is to be squashed, if it will ever be squashed. Well, I can only tell you what the, you know, what the current policy is, which is that you can only beat them with an indigenous force on the ground, yeah. that you can't beat them with foreign troops, and that, that U.S. and coalition efforts uh, using air power uh, is is in aid of that. The problem is having a cohesive indigenous force on the ground in either Iraq and Syria, and there are big, big problems in both cases. Yes, and potential indigenous forces are, I think, dissuaded by all of the videos they see about people being beheaded, uh, lined up 20 or more at the seashore. It's, it's really a dreadful, <laughs> yeah. but a very effective tactic, I suppose. Well, I thank you most sincerely, Karen DeYoung, for joining us. You're very welcome. It's been a Thank you. excellent contribution. Okay. And we shall return directly after this. Uh, who has long been convinced, Rosenberg that is, that among the many conservative journals that he reads, by far 
the most informative, the best written, and in many ways uh, the most uh, decisively phrased, is the Weekly Standard. And the uh, online editor of the Weekly Standard is our next guest, Daniel Halper, who also is the author of a book published uh, last year titled Clinton Incorporated, The Audacious Rebuilding of a Political Machine. Good afternoon, Daniel. Hey, how are you? I'm fine, and I want to start by reading one paragraph from a review of your book, uh, which uh, appeared in the Washington Times uh, about a year ago. It's a, the review was by John Coyne, who says in the middle, uh, if, it's, if it is uh, assumed, as Mr. Halper and a legion of pundits and pollsters do assume, that Hillary Clinton will be the Democratic nominee for president in 2016, it is necessary to reopen the Clinton dossier compiled over the decades. Whitewater, Monica Lewinsky, the Blue Dress, All the Women, Impeachment, Vince Foster, period, call the roll. What else would be on that roll? Well, I think what's most relevant in particular is the most recent times. So I think the Clinton Initiative, Clinton Global Initiative, it is, and the Clinton Foundation as well, frankly, as subject of yesterday's hearing, the Secretary Clinton's time as Secretary of State, I think, those are all very relevant. Past performance is usually pretty indicative of future performance. That's why we look at people's resumes when we hire when we look to hire them for a job, and that's why we should look at those things when we look to hire Hillary Clinton. For well, her career as her, her four years as Secretary of State were under a discussion and examination yesterday. What was revealed that you think uh, is of relevance? Well, I thought the committee did a very good job with two elements of the investigation. Now, the committee has, uh, in its own words, laid out a three-part investigation, looking at before the attack, during the attack, and after the attack, in particular Hillary Clinton's role. I thought they did a pretty good job of laying out that Hillary Clinton uh, was very determinative in the United States policy toward Libya. She was one of the driving forces in laying out how the U.S. would depose of Gaddafi and his, when he was in power. But that was before, and by 2012, Hillary Clinton sort of lost interest. Her losing interest meant that she wasn't, you know, meant that the, the conditions deteriorated and some citizens, some U.S. servicemen and other uh, Americans serving this country were in the country without the backup from the highest diplomat in the land. I thought that I thought the, the uh, committee did a pretty good job laying out that case that she sort of lost interest. I also thought the committee did a very good job of pointing to the fact that when the attack was finishing, Hillary Clinton immediately emailed her own daughter, Chelsea Clinton, to say that she's going to be at the office late because of a al-Qaeda-type attack on American citizens. Uh, however, Hillary Clinton at the same time was telling the American people something different, as we well know. She was blaming the attack on an Internet video. The video, as Hillary's emails uh, explained, had nothing to do with it. That has That is the conventional wisdom these days. That's the conventional wisdom Hillary had at the time, and yet somehow a different narrative emerged from the administration, suggesting that after the attack, there was a certain kind of cover-up, or at least excuses 
that really had nothing to do with the attack. And I thought that's what the committee did very well. I thought the 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 third part that during the attack, I didn't think the committee did a very good job of exploring what Hillary Clinton's role was, what she was responsible for, what mistakes she might have made while the attack. Uh, spe- speaking of the video itself, uh, going back to uh, the Sunday programs on which Susan Rice appeared, uh, that uh, blame it on the video line was developed uh, some five or six times in one morning on five or six separate programs. Absolutely. She was not the only one repeating this line, but we do know that she didn't believe the line. That wasn't the line she was telling her daughter, Chelsea Clinton. It wasn't the line that she was telling the Egyptian prime minister. It wasn't the line that she was talking about with the Libyan prime minister, why is it that that was the line that she was telling the American people? When well, if it, if it was a lie, it has to have, it. if it was a lie, it has to have had some motivation, probably political. How would you reconstruct the nature of that motivation? Uh, well, I wouldn't say lie, but a line. But I, I would say that, look, in the context of, the, of, of that attack, in the greater American political context, uh, President Obama and Vice President Joe Biden were making the case that GM was alive and al-Qaeda was dead, and that they had done a very good job of reviving domestic a- economy, and they had done a very good job of rooting out terrorism. Now, if you have an al-Qaeda-like attack on U.S. diplomats killing the first ambassador who's died in the line of service in 30 years, that kind of undercuts your argument. And so I, my sense, and the sense of uh, various members of the committee, is that they came up with this line to, to uh, you know, to shelter themselves from criticism in the height of such a campaign season. Um, my partner in today's discussion here in studio is Arthur Sear, political scientist uh, at Carthage College in Wisconsin, and uh, generally very, very well informed about uh, matters international. Former high official at the old Chicago Council on Foreign Relations. Here he is. Well, it's a great opportunity and privilege to talk with you directly, sir. Do you think, can you point to anything from your point of view that is a positive accomplishment by Secretary Clinton uh, while in office or the foreign policy officials of the Obama administration generally? Not not limited at all, obviously. Well, that's to, very a, Please. Well, that's a question that was posed to Hillary Clinton numerous times during her book tour a year ago. She had a very hard time answering that question, wasn't able to do so directly. Her basic answer was, well, we helped restore America's standing in the world. We helped end wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. We helped uh, better relations with various countries. I think when you look down and you, you dig into those I think it's very, very hard to prove. It's very hard to prove, for instance, that the war in Iraq and Afghanistan are over. We just lost servicemen today in, in Iraq, and, and, and ISIS, of course, is running rampant. Afghanistan, President Obama has just told us that troops will continue to be there for years to come. And I think America's standing, obviously, that's very debatable based on various uh, loosey-goosey uh, public polls. And I think it's very, very hard to determine. That's not a question, really, for me. I think that's a question for her. She had a very hard time answering that question. Oh, oh no, thank and, you, thank you very much for good reason. Thank you very much for summarizing her comments. I was, I was curious about your own view. Is there anything you can point to that you'd see as positive in the uh, record overall, which now goes on for a term and a half? Well, I think certain small things. I think uh, relations with Burma, 
Myanmar are, are slightly better. Mm-hmm. I think certain relations with certain countries in certain respects are slightly better, but I don't think overall things are better. I think there's a lot of chaos in a lot of in a lot of the world. I think President Obama drew a red line in regards to Syria and then didn't follow through. I think that's helped destabilize uh, both the conflict in Syria and U.S. relations in the Middle East writ large. Look, obviously, I think the best the best places where they would point to success are uh, they have better. The U.S. has clearly has better relations with Iran. The U.S. clearly has better relations with Cuba. But that has come at the expense of various allies. And I think uh, I'm not sure personally that that is a sign of success. It's a different way of looking at foreign policy. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, what they would point to. Thank you. Failing indictment based upon FBI findings, which seems to me extremely unlikely, even though some are predicting it, um, we uh, have to ask who this woman who aspires to be and could very well turn out to be the next president of the United States, uh, is on the basis of the record of what she and her close partner have been up to for some time. Um, A a great question is raised, and I know it's also answered, um, but is raised in the title of your last book, which is Clinton Incorporated, The Audacious Rebuilding of a Political Machine. What was audacious about it? What was rebuilt? Well, I think if you look at the record, when President Clinton left the White House, he was really in a he left it in a cloud of scandal and disgrace. He was not respected by obviously by Republicans, but nor was he respected by Democrats alike. I think Democrats obviously by 2008 took that out on him. They they misunderstood their place in the Democratic Party. Democratic voters was that basically because of the Lewinsky Obama. Was that basically because of the Lewinsky affair? And the uh, uh, and the impeachment proceedings that followed. It, in in a sense, it was clearly that that had a devastating effect. But I think, in a larger sense, Bill Clinton was not able to be a successful president because uh-huh. he was dealing with his own shortfalls. Not because he was so. In other words, not because he he was impeached, but because he wasn't able to be such a successful president because he was impeached. You know what I mean? If he was dealing with these things that were inconsequential in the eyes of very many Democratic voters, why would they want another Clinton in the White House? Hillary Clinton, in the last six years, since losing the Democratic nomination, I think, has really put her head down and done a very good job of winning back Democratic voters. Of course, it's come at the expense of some of the Republicans that they had won back, because that was what they first set out to do when they left the White House. They set out to win back the Republican electorate. So they've sort of, you know, teetered back towards Democratic voters. But she's obviously in a very, very good position to win the Democratic nomination. As we can see, the next debate on the stage, Hillary Clinton in the center, Bernie Sanders, a 74-year-old socialist from Vermont on her left, and Martin O'Malley, a uh, liberal Maryland governor, two-term Maryland governor, who's polling at something like 1% in most national polls. And the Two of the threats have disappeared, have taken themselves out of the running in the Democratic primary. But they haven't yes, been... Yes, well... well they, they have not been seriously threatened. Last week. Yeah, but, she, but part of it is because she has done such a good job of laying the groundwork for this run and for uh, wrapping up the Democratic Party through her hard work over the last few years. I would suggest none of this is 
coincidental. Obviously, even I, a couple of weeks ago, thought certainly Biden would jump in the race, but he looked at it and he thought, these guys have done too good of a job. There isn't space for me. I've run out of time to be able to organize and to fundraise in a way that they have been able to do. And therefore, he eliminated himself from the race. And it's not because he doesn't want to be president. Clearly, he does. He made that clear in the Rose Garden this past week. It's because there is no space for him in this Democratic Party that is now controlled by Hillary Clinton. Daniel, we um, are about to serve capitalism in the usual way. <laughs> uh, plus, uh, take a brief, a mere two-minute news review. Can I ask you to hang in there uh, and uh, continue with us for a while after that? Sure. Thank Excellent. You. Then we will... Uh, shortly return to Daniel Helper. I might quickly add that the phone lines are open, 847-475-1590, 847-475-1590, and of course the email is available, and that's milt at 1590wcgo.com. We return directly after this. And directly back to Arthur Sear, who's with me here in studio, and to Daniel Helper, of the Weekly Standard, who's with us on the phone for just a few minutes. I know that you're very busy today, and I have promised to let you get out of here by 10 minutes after the hour. In the uh, uh, eight minutes that remain, uh, all in all, what is your sense of the Clintons and their role in American history? Does their presence, their achievements, their style, uh, do all of those separate strands coming together uh, represent somehow an alteration in the nature of the presidency or the presidential performance process? Well, I think it's yet to be written, obviously. If Hillary Clinton wins and she becomes the first female president, I think she will clearly be a historical favor in a way yeah. her husband was never able to achieve. Uh, with that said, uh, clearly... Um, well, then say the, Clintons, Clinton. say the Clintons up to this moment, granting that if she becomes president, that writes a a vast new chapter in their history. Right. So Bill Clinton has clearly changed the way the presidency is. I don't think before, obviously, a president quite lied to the American people so so clearly and so often and with such a straight face. And I think that really has changed the way that politicians do feel like they can talk to the American people. Look, he did it, and he got away with it. And more than that, he's one of the most popular people in the Democratic Party today. Obviously, it's not quite a straight line, and he worked very hard at that. Yes, sir. Oh, dear, I think we've lost the line. We have lost the line. But Mike, the engineer, says he's going to get him back on the line. And Arthur, I predict that Mike, the engineer, will succeed in doing so. I have every confidence. <laughs> uh, I'm sure he didn't hang up on us. He was no. In the middle no. of an important point. We are in advanced <laughs> communications, as we know. But they advance uh, toward uh, disorder as much as towards greater proficiency. Mm. And I think Mike is perhaps having some trouble um, plugging the gap. So what's your answer to the question I was just pushing? Oh, I, I believe Bill Clinton returned the Democratic Party to electability uh, after three consecutive uh, Republican presidents. Bill Clinton will or his wife will? He did. He did. The Demo oh, a lot of people were writing off the Democratic Party in the yeah. 90s. And oh, he upended that. Uh, he yeah. returned the party back to the middle of the road. Uh, of course, it's also turning uh, more popular 
if not toward the middle of the road, by virtue of demographic changes. That's right. The Absolutely. nature of our population. Yes, and women voters especially. We, we've, we've got Daniel back. Great. Sorry about that, Daniel. Blame it on the ghosts. That's of, all right. The ghosts of uh, uh, the Internet or something. Or Bill Clinton, perhaps. Yes. Who knows? At any rate, please pick up just where you were. Yeah, so I think, I think when somebody can lie to the American people in the way President Clinton did, I think it does forever change politics. Um, and, and I think it has. I think we see it on a congressional level. I think we see it on the mayoral level. I think we see it most clearly on the presidential level and during the presidential campaign that we're in the midst of right now. Um, you know, there are other things that I think really have had smaller impact. I think in the way Bill Clinton was able to work with Newt Gingrich, I don't think there's much of a legacy there. And I think, quite frankly, Hillary Clinton's run is relevant to the past because she is repudiating a lot of President Clinton's legacy in terms of crime, in terms of various, in terms of the budget, in terms of various bills, even abortion, where President Clinton called said that it should be rare and uncommon, Hillary Clinton doesn't seem to be taking that approach. So I think, you know, I'm not sure Bill Clinton had much of a legacy in the way that he once had, and I think, frankly, that's one of the reasons Democrats were so frustrated with them for so many years. Well, but, the, but that's uh, a change in approach that the Democratic Party itself seems to have taken. The Democratic Party, whether led by the Clintons or otherwise, has certainly moved to the left in the last few years, don't you think? No doubt. I think it's much more Barack Obama's Democratic Party yeah, than it is. Exactly. <clears throat> yes. Uh, and uh, I must confess, this is a personal reflection. <clears throat> I may even surprise my old friend Art Sear. I was once uh, a, quote, liberal or a liberaloid in the standard fashion for Jewish uh, intellectoids who uh, teach in American universities uh, in the social sciences of all things. But I changed. As people get older, they grow properly uh, more conservative if they've got brain at all. Uh, but I confess that what really moved me was the Clinton presidency. I think I may have voted for him the first time around, but all the audacious misuse of the office that one perceived from there on set me to re-examining and rethinking and opened me again to uh, more serious uh, critical critique of uh, governance and and the misuse of the powers of government. Um, so what do you think that, that, that the Clintons are about to be sent, sent back? Uh, I, I'm not happy about it at all. I differ from my friend Arthur Sear on that. He favors Hillary Clinton and will vote for her if he has the opportunity. Against Donald Trump, in fairness to me. I would vote one of those. for anybody running against ah, Hillary okay. Clinton. Or you might... Take the expedient that was once advertised on stickers on the back of cars. Uh, don't vote. It only encourages them. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> well, we shall see. Uh, Daniel, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, it's been a great pleasure meeting you uh, by phone. Hope to see you again. It was lovely. Thank you. Bye-bye bye now. Uh, well, <clears throat> yeah, you're, so you're, you're pro-Hillary only because of the presence of Donald. Well, that was the question you asked me. Yeah, it oh, was indeed. I think yeah. there were more desirable Republicans yeah. running, including Governor Kasich. Uh, if Kasich Ohio. were running against her, no. you'd, you'd vote for him. That's my current view. Who, who else? Current view. Who else on the Republican side? Probably Carly Fiorina. Aha. Uh -huh. 
Ben Good. Carson, who has tremendous well, we potential to break up the... In 1996, I had the opportunity to participate in a volunteer movement to uh, get Colin Powell to run for president. Yeah. And uh, there's some fascinating hard polling data that I had a chance to see about the degree to which he drew African Americans for right. the Republican Party. Not a majority, but a very large minority of that population. Since you brought up ethnicity, mm-hmm. and we've been discussing gender, and should yeah, yeah no, he he can really shake things up. It seems to me a natural and virtually inevitable, but because it seems virtually inevitable, Donald Trump might well resist it. All the same, the prediction that I would make is that if Trump gets the nomination, by far the wisest vice presidential choice he could make is Ben Carson. Mm-hmm. Um, that's well, uh, that's often the way it works, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But in this case, because uh, he is an African-American, mm-hmm. as well as really a quite distinguished character. Yes, indeed. And a very different in style yeah. from uh, the man who would aspire to the presidency. Yeah. If people actually vote the way these polls, we only have polls now, of course, but yeah. if people actually vote that way, that would make perfect sense. It is also a tremendously interesting turn in American politics, is it not, that the two leading candidates of that party are neither of them Mm-hmm. Uh, office holders in the past any place. I'd also vote for Joe Bush. I can't understand why I forgot him, but I uh-huh. think he's a plausible, except for his name and the American dislike of dynasties, contrary to folklore. He'd probably I think be a that, pretty good president. That has made trouble for him. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Will it make trouble for Chelsea uh, Clinton 20 years from now? We'll have to see, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Who knows what the Clintons will have done to our there, political system by then. There's the thought, (laughs) horrible or otherwise, there's an interesting thought. We shall pause for the usual reasons and then return. And I am in studio with my friend Arthur Sear. We've been talking to two informants from Washington and a third one coming up. But I guess we've got a few reflective moments here. What have you heard so far that seems to you of particular pertinence? In terms of the presidential race? Yeah, and from our guests. Um, the tremendous uh, emotional charge that uh, Hillary Clinton and uh, and Bill and the, the image of the Clinton dynasty carries with our last caller in terms of mm-hmm. obviously very negative sentiments, but he remains, and she does in terms of poll numbers, a very popular figure. We'll see when the voting actually occurs. There's lots of evidence that uh, the average American probably quite sanely doesn't think much about politics this early on. Ted Kennedy challenged Jimmy Carter in 1980 in part because he led President Carter by more than two to one in the polls. And then when people actually started voting, he dropped like a rock, as uh, uh, many of us recall directly from that era. It's funny that until yesterday, when her performance before the committee was judged by most observers as... Uh, effective, as calm and sort of statesmanlike, or at least polite and fluent. But until those judgments yesterday, uh, she was seen by much of the press, even the liberal press, as uh, botching Mm -hmm. uh, the campaign and as performing very badly on the the speech circuit. Yeah. Well, we'll see. It's too soon. She, I believe, tends to get a very good press from the major television and radio media, the electronic network media. Mm -hmm. We'll see how things go over the long term. The Wall Street Journal, 
Now, a tradition with the Wall Street Journal, I mean, they're absolutely outraged at her performance, and uh, they've had several editorial pieces ex- just excoriating her, and we'll see. You mean her long-range performance or her performance no, yesterday? No, her performance yesterday. They yeah. came out right away. I haven't seen the, the journal they, they, of course, drove the Whitewater um, controversy yeah. and semi-scandal, but that, of course, did not result in anything in terms of any, substan- any significant prosecution. Well, what were they saying about her performance before the Benghazi committee uh, yesterday? Well, that she was evasive, that she, in fact, if you look at the facts, the facts weren't addressed, and it's all fluff. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are editorials, not news columns, but I mentioned that as, an, as a contrary opinion. We'll have to see as things shake out. You're right, she's had a very difficult several months in her campaign, but she... Uh, well, she sounds, she seems rather wooden or fake or theatrical yeah. um, and uh, just not real yeah. on the campaign trail. Mm-hmm. In some contrast to her husband. Yeah. He always had that natural style. He's so he's so intelligent in the New yeah. Hampshire primary. This was unrehearsed. Um, a couple of our friends from Chicago area, Tom Roser, the Republican, long-term Republican uh, yeah. operative and official and spokesperson, uh, he and Bruce Dumont encountered them in New Hampshire. And when Bill Clinton learned that they that Tom was from Park Ridge, uh-huh. uh, Hillary was not particularly interested in participating. But he suddenly came alive. They both experienced this unbelievable charm. And he came up with chapter and verse about the public school and the firehouse and, you know, this place where Hillary and her aunt. He mm-hmm. had a mental map in his head. Well, it couldn't have been rever- rehearsed of yeah. Park Ridge. She was the one from Park Ridge. I know. <laughs> but, you know, we, we've both heard and read this undeniable evidence that he's just exceptionally intelligent and a great operator and a great deal maker in Washington Yeah, in policy terms. And he... Um, <clears throat> I'm scandalized. This shows what a real old-fashioned creature I am. I'm scandalized by the reports one still gets, to be sure, from um, the more salaciously oriented press that he's still uh, womanizing around the world a great deal. Yeah, I, uh, I'm, I'm glad to say I don't have any <laughs> direct evidence, and, um, and th- that's the tabloid press. I mean, that's well, no matter re- who you are. It's reflected would... in the serious press. Uh, okay. It is, as a matter of fact. So they don't make much of it. No. The tabloid press makes a lot of it. Oh, yes. But yeah. uh, it's generally reflected by serious political observers yeah. who kind of mention it in passing because, after all, that's part of the reality. And that that's not a real marriage at all, mm-hmm. that the Clintons don't live together hardly at all and uh, lead totally different lives, but they remain a loyal political pair, hmm. uh, uh, partners in a great political operation. We have with us now on the phones, uh, a man whose work I've much admired over the years, one of the great experts on American politics, Michael Barone, who these days is senior political analyst for the Washington Examiner. Uh, good afternoon, Michael. Hey, good afternoon. Good to be with you. So it's a pleasure to have you here again. Uh, you know, I can't uh, but um, mention, though this is a highly personal memory, but it, it involves you, um, that... Um, just before, uh, just before Obama was elected, I had a critic of Obama's on the air with me, and uh, he had been doing research on Obama's performance in Chicago with regard to educational funds provided by an Eastern philanthropy. And uh, the Obama campaign, whom we invited to supply 
another guest who could respond to those charges, instead refused to come, but instead sent out uh, emails to th- hundreds of thousands of people, for all I know, telling them to call that radio station, it's not the one I'm on right now, to demand that they take me off the air and uh, totally vilifying them, not so much me as my guest, who was actually a very responsible and uh, decent fellow. Um, and uh, there was much press commentary on that the following day, and I think leading that press commentary was a column by you. My gosh, well, thank you for the memory. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting. There's an impulse on the part of many people on the political left, liberal side, not all, um, to not to answer critical speech, but to suppress it. Uh, we did have President Obama the other day speaking out against college speech codes and suppression of opinion. I think he gave a very good statement on that. But a lot of his political allies uh, seem to think that uh, you ought to be suppressing speech that doesn't agree with you. And I think that's out of line with a very good American tradition. About to mention the First Amendment of the Constitution. Mm-hmm. So now that we've got you sitting there and with some minutes available, uh, your overall reactions to what's been happening so far. Uh, and I suppose we might begin with yesterday's uh, trial by, uh, by ordeal, if it was an ordeal, for Mrs. Clinton before the Benghazi committee. Uh, it's commonly said she acquitted herself well. Was that your view? Uh, well, I think she acquitted herself well in terms of demeanor, in terms of just showing a certain amount of, uh, an impressive amount of endurance and perseverance. I think uh, one of her strong uh, positive characteristics is that she is a person who perseveres even in the face of difficulty. That's a quality uh, that I suppose most voters generally would like to see in a president. That's a plus for her. I think the other thing is, you know, the con- the other side of the coin is that uh, she was playing defense. And uh, we uh, heard discussions of her emails, and uh, she didn't really have a good answer to the question that was propounded by Representative Jim Jordan, who quoted emails and communications transcripts of phone conversations that she'd had with her daughter, Chelsea Clinton, mm-hmm. with the Libyan president, with the Egyptian president, where she said that the Benghazi attacks were the work of an al-Qaeda or al-Qaeda-type terrorist group. And the comments that she made publicly and to the, privately to family members of those who were murdered there, that uh, attributing the attacks to uh, spontaneous protests against the anti-Islamic video. Yeah. That was a convenient uh, point for the president who was running for re-election on the platform, as his vice president put it, that General Motors is alive and bin Laden is dead. Yeah, and um, as, as I was pointing out to Karen DeYoung, who was with us earlier, um, at the same t- at that very same time when she was telling the truth to her daughter, uh, Susan Rice was instructed to go out and do all the Sunday morning programs pushing the video story. Uh, that's right. Uh, Hillary Clinton, at the very least, uh, was not... Uh, speaking out against that, she evidently refused to appear on the Sunday interview shows, as I gather was her general practice as Secretary of State, uh, and uh, was undoubtedly aware that Susan Rice was uh, making this uh, presentation on the five uh, interview shows where she talked about the protest against the video. Uh, you know, the fact is, that was a lie. Um, we know now that people had 
uh, inside the State Department, and we know that President, that uh, Secretary of State Clinton, as she then was, um, was taking seriously the argument that this was a planned attack by a terrorist, al-Qaeda-affiliated or sympathized uh, group, and uh, she was putting out misleading information or uh, not disputing uh, at least the information that was put out. We have, you know, President Obama is latest two weeks after the attacks on September 25th in the United Nations, uh, talking about uh, the anti-Islamic video uh, once again. Um, and, you know, my my view on this is that uh, nothing is free in politics. Uh, there is some question about when you pay a price. President Obama did not pay a price for putting out the video lie, the misleading statements about the video uh, in 2012. I think Hillary Clinton, when you look at the polls on what people think of her honesty and trustworthiness, is paying a price today. And, um, you know, the Democratic Party is potentially paying a price because uh, she is their almost inevitable uh, nominee for president at this stage of the game. And a nominee that most voters think is not honest and not trustworthy is not a nominee that goes into the race with a handicap that by no means all candidates have. But how, however, we're told by many people who read the polls closely that uh, basically if you wanted to predict from the polls now available, uh, she is, with some edge, uh, the likely winner of the presidency. Well, I... Particularly matched I against, I, against Drudge. Uh, well, against... <laughs> I didn't mean yes, drudge, Trump. Of that was a Freudian slip. Yes, it certainly was. Matt, Matt has not yet put his hat into the ring. Yeah. This were a hat matched, matched against Trump, right? Yeah. Well, she's uh, she's leading in some polls against some candidates. She's uh, you know uh, trailing in other polls behind candidates. I took a look at uh, some of her poll ratings against various Republican candidates the other day and found her averaging about 44% of the vote. Uh, you can take a different sample of polls and you find that number slightly different, but it's roughly the same. That's, you know, she's a universally known candidate. Uh, she's not a person who's got to run uh, television ads yeah. explaining who she is, and she grew up in uh, Park Ridge, Illinois, and so forth and so on. She, uh, she is thoroughly known. People have watched her in the public eye since 1992, uh, they've watched her perseverance, which we saw again on Thursday. Uh, they've watched her uh, difficulty sometimes uh, with being honest and trustworthy, at least in the opinion of most voters. So um, she's a known factor, and if she's running under 50%, that's at least a little bit discomforting, I think, to people who want to see the Democratic Party win the election. I've been, uh, I've been she puzzled. Was, she was, you know, a year ago, mm -hmm. you know, 10 months ago, she was running significantly better than that, uh, and often above the 50% mark. She's below it now. I was about to say that I've been puzzled, as has my co-discussant here in the studio, uh, Art Sear, um, uh, puzzled by the discrepancy between her quite smooth job yesterday, even though she was eliding and otherwise covering over some continuing uh, uh, discrepancies or inconsistencies, but still a very smooth performance, as compared to our election speeches over the last half year, which have been uh, sometimes almost embarrassing for their inauthenticity. Well, inauthenticity, she uh, seems to take on kind of a Southern accent when she speaks in, uh, in Southern states. I, you know, that may just be, 
Well, maybe it's just a way of being friendly with local people, and uh, it's harmless. Uh, you know, uh, people who claim that she's inauthentic can certainly uh, use that as uh, one example. Uh, the, the campaign speech is not her best venue, uh, but you have to say this for her. She keeps plugging. Uh, oh, yes. She has returned to public life. She's, she's indefatigable. moments that are so yeah. embarrassing. Yeah. Yes, yes, quite so. The great well, mystery. It's so embarrassing that many people would just want to crawl into a hole and never come out again. And by gosh, whatever else you want to say about Hillary Clinton, she comes out uh, again into the public eye. Well, that's a question that future historians will have to handle. Why didn't she just go away into full private life after the Lewinsky explosion? Well, I think she, you know, I think she would say that she wanted to accomplish some public policy goals. I think there's you know, some fair basis for saying that. Uh, I think that, you know, some would say that she wants to be the first woman president. Well, there's nothing illegal about wanting to be president. Uh, you know, you could blame Ronald Reagan for her campaign. Ronald Reagan ran for president and was elected at age 69. Uh, before that election, just about everybody's conventional wisdom in American politics was that even 60, 61, too old to run. Uh Reagan raised the bar on that, and so you've got uh, her. She's turned 68 next week, uh, is running uh, as a serious candidate and, you know, odds on favorite to win the Democratic Party nomination. And those general election numbers you cited tell me she could win or she could lose. Here's a question and or a comment from my colleague, Arthur Sear. There's an enormous, it's always a privilege to... Uh have a chance to talk with you, sir. I'm very glad to be on, on the program with you tonight. Um, Eisenhower in 52, enormously popular. There was a big, serious debate. Is Ike too old at the age of 62? It's, That's right. It's a, it shows how much things have changed in just, just a half a century, which uh, is an eternity in the eyes of undergraduates, but really isn't. Our, your conversation with Milt brought up the image, uh, to me, not of Ike, but of Richard Nixon, who did have serious policy goals and achieved them. Does this uh, current imbroglio rise to the level of anything comparable to Watergate, discounting no, the fact that she's not, a, she's not a sitting president? Excuse me. I think, there, you know, I couldn't help but, as I watched those committee hearings, to be struck by some similarities with the Senate Watergate committee hearings, the House Judiciary impeachment hearings uh, 42 and 43 years ago. Hillary Clinton was a staffer. Were Democratic members of the House Judiciary Committee uh, at the time of those hearings. Uh, you heard uh, just about all the Democrats on the uh, uh, Benghazi Committee talk about how expensive this was and it was a waste of time. I remember many, though not all, of the Republicans on the uh, Judiciary Committee and the Watergate Committee saying, hey, this is a waste of time and it's costing, you know, X million taxpayer dollars going down the drain. Uh, and uh, so, you know, there, were, there certainly are some similarities. I think both of those sets of hearings addressed what are legitimate public policy uh, matters that uh, Congress can legitimately investigate. They also inevitably had political repercussions. The target of the 1973-74 hearings was the President of the United States. The target this time, uh, at least on Thursday, was a uh, person who is very likely to be the Democratic presidential nominee in 2016. So um, there, there has to be a political dimension, even though I think the committees in all uh, three cases had legitimate uh, 
legislative goals and, and governmental policies to investigate. Um, I am somewhat preoccupied, as is Arthur Sear, who these days teaches um, at Carthage College, but used to be uh, the second in command for quite a while at the Chicago Council on Foreign Relations. And uh, I'm inevitably somewhat preoccupied by foreign affairs issues. And one wonders, with regard to both of the likely candidates, just what they would be doing in terms of Middle East policy particularly. And well, I, I think we'll probably hear more about that as time goes on. We've got uh, some real challenges in the Middle East, uh, you know. Uh, and some real failures as well. Yeah, I mean, for, we've got the Russians in the Middle East in a major way for the first time since uh, 1970, about 1970-73, uh, playing a major role in the Middle East in part That's by right. our invitation when President Obama uh, declined to take military action to enforce the red line that he had declared in August 2012, uh, he, the Russians, the Putins said, well, we'll go in there, and, and we, by gosh, agreed with it. And now, in the process of talking with the Russians to try to de-conflict uh, the, the thing and not have the uh, uh, firefight between Russian and American uh, air jet aircraft over Syria, certainly that's something we like to see. Um, like not to see, rather. We don't want to have that kind of conflict. So we've got some tough choices. I think, you know, on the Iran nuclear deal, uh, that's one where the president prevailed. Uh, majorities in Congress opposed it. Uh, majorities of the public and public opinion polling opposed it. Uh, it's a policy that the president clearly believes in strongly. And, uh, you know, it's it's uh, certainly a legitimate matter for inquiry. Now, Secretary, former Secretary Clinton says she endorses the Iran nuclear deal. The Republican candidates, I believe, are all uh, against it in some way, shape, or form. But a fair question for them is, uh, what do you do now about it? And uh, particularly since you know a lot of the sanction regimes, uh, regimes that were built up with the uh, European and other countries have now been dismantled and will be difficult to re-erect. So there's some real challenges over there. And uh, it, it, you know, foreign policy is often a question of, uh, is, is often presents uh, cases in which the United States doesn't really have any clearly good choices. And I would characterize the situation in the Middle East as fitting that description. I wonder if we have any better choices when it comes to domestic policy. The uh, coming um, unanimous vote for Ryan as uh, uh, head of the House, as Speaker, uh, raises some prospect that maybe there's going to be a new undertaking to bring the budget under control, since that was his main uh, task uh, at the head of, of Ways and Means. Do you think anything is likely to happen that will make a real difference in that regard, once he is put in as speaker? Uh, I don't think anything's going to happen in the next 15 months. And I think the main reason is that President Obama has shown uh, uh, very little inclination uh, to negotiate issues with Congress or willingness to negotiate issues with Congress, much less than President Bill Clinton, substantially less, I would argue, than President George W. Bush. Uh, this has led some of the Republicans to be, uh, you know, to feel hugely frustrated and uh, angry and 
you know, moving to basically to throw out uh, the speaker, their own elected Speaker of the House, John Boehner. Uh, but, you know, I think these compromises are possible. We saw them in Bush years. We saw them in Clinton years. Uh, neither side got everything they wanted. Uh, we've seen them in former presidencies. And uh, it depends on the next president. It depends on the balance of power in Congress. Uh, one thing we know is that after January 2017, Barack Obama, who has not shown much willingness or ability to compromise, won't be president anymore. Harry Reid, a Democratic senator from Nevada, will not be Democratic leader of the Senate. He's, you know, uh, blocked attempts to, uh, to, to go through the regular budget process. I mean, in 2010, he blocked uh, Democratic Senator Kent Conrad, the then chairman of the Budget Committee, from presenting a budget, and he's basically uh, blocked just about everything except the agreement that was reached, I think, in late 2013. I may have the year wrong on that, between uh, uh, Paul Ryan, then chairman of the Budget Committee, and Patty Murray, the Democrat in Washington, who then was the chairman of the Senate Budget Committee. Um, you know, Senator Murray's participation, and she's a pretty tough partisan, shows that even tough partisans can produce uh, bipartisan compromises. Uh, but basically, I think the president, Harry Reid, have pretty much blocked that on, on many domestic issues. And the president's uh, veto uh, announced this week of the defense authorization bill, which passed by more than two-to-one margin in the House and in the Senate and nearly two-to-one in the House of Representatives. A lot of bipartisan take put on that. A lot of serious attempts at reforming military policy. Uh, you may or may not agree with them, but they're clearly serious attempts to improve public policy uh, in our military establishment. Uh, and the president's blocked it because they don't increase, they're not increasing uh, domestic spending as much as uh, he would like. Well, um, you know, he's never sat down and talked to them about it in the last several years. Uh, and he's uh, you know, this, this, he's also, this is the first time a president has ever vetoed a defense authorization bill uh, by demanding more spending on non-defense uh, programs. So um, I think, you know, the, we, we, we look, many people look to the Republicans as the major reason why there's not bipartisan cooperation. I think uh, a larger part of the answer resides at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Mm -hmm. Here's Arthur Sear again. Following up on uh, Paul Ryan and the speakership, you wrote a great book about British political history. Ah. For many years after World War II, th there were references from time to time about how we really need a nonpartisan, uh, bipartisan Speaker of the House, sort of like the British. And Sam Rayburn, the longest-serving speaker into the 1960s, seemed to me to accomplish that to a remarkable degree. And weaker successors... Uh, echoed that approach. It's become a completely partisan office today, of course, uh, kind of the, the other Republican majority leader in the current House. Is there any way, do you think, that with Ryan's skills he might be able to move back toward that earlier approach? Well, I don't think we're going to move to a British type speaker. No, no. I was just British plugging your speaker, book. The British speaker never uh, takes a position on roll calls or partisan things. Uh, is not necessarily chosen by party. I mean, when the, the current speaker, John Burkow, who was a conservative member, uh, was elected speaker when there was a labor majority in Parliament, so in the House of Commons. So uh, 
that tradition is different. They, you know, no party runs a candidate against the uh, Speaker of the House when he seeks re-election. Uh, so the conservatives missed a chance to pick up a really safe seat, which Burkow has held in Buckinghamshire. Um, the, uh, you know, I, I don't think we're going to go to that extent. How about uh, Sam you know, Rayburn? One of, the pro- one of the situations is that we had, for many years, the sort of old normal was actually a uh, an anomaly. And that is, you know, people look back and say, well, there were a lot of moderate conservative Democrats. There were a pretty fair number of liberal Republicans and so forth. Part of that was the remnants of uh, Civil War loyalties. Why did Democrats win all those seats in the South and elect members who voted very conservatively on most issues? Um, they were still, the answer is a lot of voters down there were still voting against General Sherman and uh, Sherman's march through Georgia. Uh, that war had reverberations that lasted for generations. Uh, and, you know, when you consider the death toll in, the, uh, in that war, you can under, I think you can understand why that's the case. Michael, I have um, a basic question yeah. for you. I've got to pause right now for some commercials. Then we come okay. back. We'll be on the okay. air till 56 minutes after the hour. Could you uh, take that time and remain with us? Yeah, I guess so. Wonderful. Okay. Then we'll be directly back to Michael Barone and to Arthur Sear here in studio after this. And we return to Arthur Sear and to Michael Barone. Earlier, we were joined from Washington also by Karen DeYoung of the Washington Post and Daniel uh, Helper of uh, the Weekly Standard. Michael Barone, of course, is analyst for the Washington Examiner. And gentlemen, <clears throat> I want to read you some emails and get your responses to them. Though it is time for me to say, of course, we're open for still more emails if you get them in quickly. The address, milt, M-I-L-T, at 1590wcgo.com. And here's the very first. Where was the smoking gun for Comrade Hillary? I was waiting for it all day. It was like watching The Godfather 3. I was hoping it would get good, and it was never better than the first few Opening frames. Uh, so asks James uh, of Evanston. What do you make of that particular question, Michael? Well, I think that uh, you're not going to, you're not, you, you know, the, the, the Benghazi committee hearings were not scripted by a Hollywood scriptwriter <laughs> building up to a climax or the guy that used to, gals that used to write the Perry Masons when the <laughs> witness would get on the stand and Perry would, Perry would force him to reveal who the real murderer was. Uh, you weren't going to see that. I think, uh, to me, the crucial point was Jim Jordan's question, uh, the Republican from Ohio of Secretary Clinton, about why she was emailing her daughter, the Libyan president, the Egyptian president, and saying that the attack was caused by, was done by al-Qaeda, was a planned attack, and while she was uh, telling uh, the rest of the world that it was uh, happening, at least in part, as spontane- part of a spontaneous protest against an anti-Muslim video. So uh, I think that was one of the key points. The committee spent a lot of time uh, and effort on the questions of, you know, why wasn't the security for this uh, compound, uh, this diplomatic installation in Benghazi uh, stepped up? Um, I think, you know, it, it's not it's plausible that that decision never reached the secretary, as she says. It's the sort of thing that not, would not necessarily do so, though it might. Uh, and, maybe, and obviously it would have been better had it done so. 
Uh, and uh, it's, you know, it's the sort of mistake governments make. I mean, Bill Clinton had Osama bin Laden with, within his uh, within our military site, could have blown him away. Uh, he decided for reasons that seemed good to him at the time that he wouldn't do it, and uh, I'm sure he regretted that decision later. Uh, President Bush uh, has just been uh, raked over the coals by Donald Trump for not having uh, done more to prevent 9-11 and the uh, eight or nine months that he was in office before the attack. Obviously, he wishes he had done something better. We, hindsight uh, is a lot better than foresight, and you know we don't always protect against all the horrible things that can happen in this world. Uh, you know, I think that's the kind of mistake that uh, people may want to take into account, but at the same time, um, that sort of thing is going to happen sooner or later. I mean, Pearl Harbor, we lost uh, many uh, people there because uh, we weren't uh, configured to uh, uh, resist an attack in the way that, in retrospect, we wish we had. At any rate, you, you see this as uh, that discrepancy between what she said to her daughter or what she uh, said publicly. You see that more as a matter of confusion than intended deception. Well, I have to think that there's uh, intended deception there. Uh, and one of the questions I have, the reports are that Secretary Clinton talked with uh, President Obama around 10 o'clock in the evening uh, of that uh, day of the attack. Uh, she did not speak with Sec Defense Secretary Panetta or Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Um, what did they say? We, we don't really know, and we probably never will know for sure. I wonder if they decided that, hey, we're going we're gonna to throw out this... Uh, Muslim video, anti-Muslim video story out there. Uh, there was something that happened in Egypt uh, at the, you know, sometime before the uh, Benghazi attack uh, that was arguably a spontaneous protest against the video. So we'll we'll spread that around about yeah. what happened in All Benghazi. Now we don't know if that that happened, and we'll never know that happened. But I think I think it's plain from the information that was there that. Uh, the secretary knew what had happened. I think so, too. Uh, these other stories came in over the transom and were promoted by Deputy National Security Advisor Ben Rose. Uh, obviously, there was an attempt to spotlight them through Susan Rice's appearances. Uh, secretary Clinton told the well, she was, uh, family... Well, she surely was... Rice was surely instructed uh, to go in that direction when she did the Sunday mo morning appearances. Well, Susan Rice was obviously instructed to go that because she was... Um, totally outside yeah. the chain of command. She sure. was then our ambassador to the United Nations, and this was not part of her operational responsibility or something that she would have known anything about other than what she got briefed on. I guess that's um, the particular thing in the hearings that will stand out as of some historical significance, if only because, because of the uh, intended or, or revealed confusion. What do you think, Art Sear? Um, I wanted to put that in a broader context since we're nearing the end, Mr. Barone. People often say that what really counts is the economy and other domestic matters, not really foreign policy. Does this uh, current controversy give the lie to that, or at least show it's an oversimplification? Well, I think that's an oversimplification. I think foreign policy has often been much more important than people uh, give it credit for. Uh, you know, I think, you know, the, the election of President Roosevelt to a third term in 1940 
would that have happened if there was no Hitler, if uh, Germany had not overrun France and was threatening to destroy Britain? Uh, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Uh, President Truman's re-election or election to a full term in 1948, I think one of the major factors there was that Truman stood up to the Soviets and ordered the Berlin Airlift, which showed America both had military strength, uh, flexibility, and generosity to former enemy uh, citizens. Yes. And, uh, that was a decision that was very much President Truman's. His leading advisors uh, did not think Berlin could be supplied by airlift. Right. The president yeah. ended the meeting by saying, General, we're not leaving Berlin. Let me read you another email I've got in front of me. <clears throat> very simple. Um, I would not take Car- uh, uh, Biden's dropping out too seriously. If Hillary falters, they will bring him out of the bullpen. Does that well, seem the like nightmare for Democrats would be if Hillary Clinton, uh, you know, if the FBI recommends an indictment of Hillary Clinton, yeah. uh, along, you know, uh, something like the charges that General Petraeus pleaded guilty to. Exactly. Uh, they're investigating that. Director Comey We talked about that earlier on this program. and uh, Yeah, I think then if you're the Democratic Party, uh, you've got a really tough decision. That would be Hillary faltering indeed. Uh, yeah. would, would Biden be the only recourse they've got at such a point. Well, I suppose they could, you know, they could nominate Chuck Schumer or somebody. I mean, uh, uh, you know, technically uh, the delegates in the convention makes its own rules and they can vote for who they want to when they get to the uh, convention city of Philadelphia this time next year. Um, but that would be, you know, that would be a real crisis for the Democratic Party, obviously. And it's, it's a nightmare. It's a nightmare that you have when you have, uh, you know, just one serious candidate in the field, and you've got a 74-year-old uh, self-described socialist who uh, appeals to many Democrats, well, now, Michael, also like Hillary Clinton. Let me give you a serious uh, counter-speculation. Yes, it might happen, except for the fact that it would create so much confusion and disorder in the electoral process, and because of that, even if the chief of the FBI is convinced by all of the people working for him that these are indictable uh, undertakings, uh, indictable actions by Mrs. Clinton, they would have to say, yes, but we can't do anything about it. It's just well, they may too disruptive. My understanding is the director of the FBI doesn't have the power uh, to bring an indictment. Uh, he can recommend yeah. uh, to the <coughs> but I think Justice he... Department that something be brought, but the decision would finally be with the Attorney General, and I think in this case with the President. Exactly, which would give her cover. Yeah, I mean, no matter what, you know, when we had uh, you had an incident when President Truman was president and his attorney general took an action firing a special prosecutor. Yeah. And President Truman fired the attorney general. <laughs> Quite so. Um, last. Um, we almost are out of time. Um, last comment from a listener. Uh, good guests today. That means you, Michael, as well as the ones who came before and Arthur Sear. Good guest today. I love the fact that there's never any screaming or desk pounding, that everyone is polite enough to be firm in their opinion, but they never forget their decency. It's a comment That's about... That's not true. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't just shout that. I'm sorry. <laughs> Very funny. Well, it's, uh, you know, these are serious matters. Uh, sometimes there's some humor to be added or to be noted uh, in them. Uh, you know, we've got this very complex process for choosing a president. 
Uh, it goes on for more than a year. Uh, it's got certain inflexibility to it. Your hypothetical question about what should happen if Hillary Clinton should not suddenly not be a viable candidate yeah. suggests some of the uh, some of the difficulties there. You've got a uh, you know uh, it's a it's a cumbersome thing. It's interesting. It's it's I think the weakest part of our political system, and it's also one that isn't mentioned in the Constitution for the vaguely about the general election of the Electoral College. The Founding Fathers didn't give us uh, this much guidance, and we've been trying to uh, adapt it ever since and trying to find uh, suitable characters to fill the, an office whose dimensions were created for George Washington. Well, uh, you know, Stephen, it's just conceivable to me, we're almost out of time, uh, but taking what you said before, of course, the ultimate indictment would have to come from the Attorney General, but even but if the FBI made so bold as to say it looks to us like she really committed crimes, the Attorney General might say no. But that might be enough of a pale cast upon her to create a crisis for the Democratic Party all the same. Well, it's one of those things that uh, you know you would like to be a fly on the wall at yeah. the campaign strategy meeting where they say, "How do we counter this?" Uh, that's going to be. That's going to be a very tough meeting. Right. Well, listen, we are at last out of time. And, Michael, I thank you most sincerely. Thank you. It's been wonderful thank having you, you with us again. It's an honor to be with you. Hope to see you again soon. And, of course, great and continuing thanks to Arthur Sear, who joins us often. Thank you, Mel. And always adds a great deal to the program. And I think we'll just calmly, since one of the listeners complimented us for remaining calm, we'll calmly say goodnight, uh, a little touch of music, in the night before the next program.